right, friends, something different for today's show since I'm not in the studio this week. Uh, recently, I had a very interesting interaction for an hour on the Canadian Catholic YouTube channel, and I was mixing it up with call-in skeptics, including one atheist many of you will recognize. Here you go. All right, everybody, welcome to this wonderful show that we have today. Uh, thanks so much for being here. I have the pleasure of uh, having my show graced by a great, great Christian author, uh, Greg Kokel. How are you, Dr. Kokel? Hey, uh, Josh, but you just gave me a raise. I'm a, not a doctor. I'm a master twice, but it's nice of you to give me the promotion. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right. Buddy. Okay. So uh, we already have our first caller, but I'm going to ask uh, the first two questions, actually, that I, I wanted you to answer, and then we're going to be letting them in. So first of all, let's start with this question that I wanted to ask you. Um, do you feel uh, – what is your view on street epistemology? Because a lot of people keep telling me that it's kind of similar to what you have here. Yes. I actually wrote an article called uh, Tactics for Atheists uh, in response to Peter Boghossian's book, Street Epistemology, which is made specifically to do the kind of thing that I'm doing with the tactics book, but from the other side. Uh, now, their focus is quite narrow. Uh, Boghossian says to his people, and this is pretty interesting, he says to his disciples, do not argue for atheism. Thing that I'm doing with the tact. Secondly, he says, do not argue against theism. Rather, ask questions. And the questions are aimed very, very specifically at the issue of faith. Because Boghossian is of the opinion that faith, by its very nature, is without evidential support. Now, he has, he has done something that many atheists do, which is very convenient, and that is to, to um, define faith. I, I want to be careful that I'm not unkind, but let me just say, in a way that suits their view, and then attack it. Now, there's a name for that. That's called a straw man. The problem with that approach, in one sense, is that there are a lot of Christians who agree that faith is something you exercise when you have no reasons. I got a call like that on my own radio show just recently, Joshua, and uh, and it was it. And I said, your question um, betrays a false understanding about biblical pistis, which actually means trust. So um, if we're going to trust something, we generally need reasons for that. And of course, the scripture is filled with justifications for trust. You know, these things were not done in a corner, Paul tells what Agrippa, you know, uh, in the beginning of the book of Acts, he appeared with many proofs, you know, many convincing proofs, on and on and on. I can go through the verses, Josh, you know them. All right. So this is a mischaracterization of um, faith. However, there are a lot of Christians that are vulnerable to this attack because they don't know better. And that's who he's after. He's after these. He teaches his guys to go, uh, and gals, his disciples, to go after Christians, not arguing with them, just asking questions. And right. then in asking questions that have to do with their unjustified faith, this is going to begin to shake them. And in fact, shake them it does. I've seen videos of those conversations with a very nice atheist and some what appeared to be stalwart Christians. They, they weren't going to give in. But as it turns out, 
one of these later makes a video back to the Bogosian crowd and says, thank you for showing me the truth. Now I'm an atheist, etc." So it got to him. Here's cool. the redeemable aspect of that in terms of comparison. I mean, we, I have more to say if you want about this book and this approach, but, but what it demonstrates is the ability to use questions effectively to cause a person to get thinking about their convictions, even doubting their convictions, even if they are not at least initially showing that. No, you know, I call that in the book tactics. I call that putting a stone in someone's shoe, but it works in both directions. We can do the same with them. So anyway, that's, that's my quick response to Peter's book. I have it right back here behind me and I I've read the whole thing. And there is this piece at str.org called an article I wrote called tactics for atheists. If people want to see a more careful treatment of that. Wonderful. Yeah. So I'm going to ask one more question because I I, I can tell that uh, our callers, but one quick question we had was how tall are you? Basically, that's what people wanted to ask in the chat. What was the question? How tall are you? (laughs) Well, I used to be six feet tall. Now I'm five, eight. Uh, Not that much. Well, I'm almost 72. You know, as time goes on, you get smaller because those discs that extend your spine, they start to disappear. Uh, That's that's altitude loss, you know. And so, uh, yeah, so I'm five, ten about right now. Five, ten. Yeah. People usually picture me shorter. or They've told me that, but that's not. I'm you just, quite tall. Yeah. yeah, awesome. All right. Here is uh, Doug. He's been a wonderful, wonderful fan of yours. And he, <laughs> and he, no, he has. He has been one of the uh, leading fans of yours. And he is the head of Pine Creek Ministries currently. Uh, yes. Doug, go ahead. Uh, the floor is yours. What would you like to add? Hi, Greg. Do you remember me? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, are you an atheist? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I, I think you're the one that we had a conversation on about uh, on the show about um, two three years carrots. ago. Yeah, it was about carrots and sticks. Yeah, about carrots and sticks. And I asked you the poof or drown question. Remember that? Um, well, I remember the conversation. I don't remember yeah, everything okay. that was said, but yeah, sure. Well, since you guys were talking about SE, um, I, I guess my first question to you is, do you think it's OK for a guy like me to ask questions of Christians to as a goal to try to get them to doubt their faith? Of course. Okay. I have no trouble. You have your point of view and you want to advance your point of view. Yep. And, um, and Christians have their point of view and, and, uh, you know, may the best idea win. That's my, that's my uh, approach to this whole thing. I totally Uh, agree. Oh, thank you. Then part of what I'm trying to do, Doug, uh, is to help equip, Christians who may be untutored in not only the footwork of these conversations, but even the content pertaining to these issues. And so this is what we do at Stand to Reason. We provide that content so that um, so that they aren't blindsided by, I think, an inappropriate challenge or maybe an inaccurate a challenge or, or something like a straw man that I discussed earlier. Yeah. Well, I, I think uh, with most SE practitioners and you, I can't speak for everyone, but when I talk, when I ask questions, I don't import a def- definition of let's say faith to anyone. I ask them, what's your definition of faith? But yeah. I think you're, I think you're right though, that a lot of Christians don't have a biblical answer to it. Yeah. Uh, well, that's interesting that you'd say that. Uh, if what you're suggesting is that a biblical answer is that their uh, faith is understood to be an exercise 
of trust based on reasons. Even yep. if people don't have those reasons, this certainly the support is in there. Now, and now you know that Bogosian takes exception with that explicitly. Yep. And he even says in his book, there'll be some apologists that say, well, faith is not a leap. It's really an act of trust based on evidence, but don't believe them. I mean, that's in the book. So yep. uh, it's not, it's refreshing to me to hear, Doug, uh, that, that that's not the direction you're going. Yeah, I do think if Bogosian was on the street and he approached a Christian, they start talking, I don't think he would actually say, by the way, your definition of faith is this. He would never do that, I don't think. I think he would say, so mm-hmm. what is your definition of faith? He's, he's a pretty mm-hmm. smart guy. Yeah, um, of course. And by the way, I, I'm, I might tip my hat to him for bailing out over there at Portland State because of some crazy things that are going on. And he's made common cause with another Christian apologist, I think. Uh, regarding and debating and going around the country talking about the the inc- the terrible uh, indoctrination that's going on from the left on certain things, and I uh, yeah. I, I think that's great. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think you are aligned on that. Uh, so even though we disagree on God, the issue of God, uh, I do see some followers of some theories as being very dangerous and bad for society. Yeah, you know there was a very famous athe- uh, uh, abortionist that was an atheist who ended up changing his mind. At based on 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 the on the uh the merits of the issue as he saw it and became pro life even though he was still an uh, an atheist he has since become bernard nathanson he is, i think he's dead now but he then became eventually a christian but i think a roman catholic christian but the point i'm making is many pro lifers are happy to make common cause with him on the issue that they were both concerned with and they shared convictions on okay uh this is a i'm not sure if i agree with you or not but uh on the issue of street epistemology, I, I hear what you're saying that sometimes a guy like me can talk to, a, let's just call it an immature Christian, and they might not really know what they should know. Mm-hmm. But I do think it also works the other way around. Like when a Christian talks to uh, an agnostic or an atheist about the deeper things of, of life, and they haven't really thought through these things, or let's say they're, they just got divorced or bankrupt or lost a family member and they're hurting, I do think it works that way too, where a Christian can actually use that, dare I say, desperation to lead them to Christ. Okay, it works that way. Tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that. You mean that there is just an emotional response or an emotional need that's being met by kind of leaning on this Christ that doesn't exist the way they think they do, and that's the main motivation for them to do that? Is that Uh, right? Yeah, I'm just saying like... that taking advantage of can work both ways. Like, like what a street epistemologist might do is take advantage of the ignorance of the Christian, whereas a Christian could take advantage of the desperation of the unbeliever. Oh, I see. Okay. All right. Now um, let me just offer clarification there. In my mind, they're not parallel and you can um, weigh in on this. If you like a Doug, they're not parallel because in the first, in, in the first case you have a, a, um, a factual issue. What does Christianity represent regarding the nature of faith and the act of faith? Step of trust and evidence. Okay. It may be that both the atheist and the Christian are untutored on that, but the fact remains. All right. If a Christian is appealing, though, to an atheist, 
during a difficult time, it is consistent with their worldview to say there is a God, even if they don't have ev- emph- uh, evidences that they're offering, there is a God who cares about what's going on in your life right now. Okay. Right. Now, that may be a disputed fact, but that strikes me as a g- given the Christian worldview, the Christian believes that is a, it's a totally appropriate thing to say. It's well, not the, taking advantage illicitly, it seems to me. It's speaking to a genuine human need based on what they understand to be a sound response to it. Well, what, I mean, what I mean by taking advantage of is like, um, I've been doing this for a long time and I've come, I've seen, I'm a pattern seeker. I see patterns and the patterns I've noticed is between the ages of 18 and 22, you'll find a lot of people who, let's say, came from a Christian background, but kind of rejected it. And then between 18 and 22, they go through a period where, either guilt sets in or some type of major event happens in their life, which is all normal because they're finding out who they are or becoming adults and so forth. And then they, they hit it like maybe a desperation moment where I got to change my life. I got to turn this around. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then a Christian, they meet a Christian and they talk. And before they even ask questions like, well, why should I believe Jesus was, was God? Why, why is, why do you believe there's a heaven and hell before that right. even is before they even look at the evidence, they are desperate to accept help. Right. And, and, and that's all I'm saying is that there's a danger that we as humans, and I think it works for everyone. We as humans, that mode of desperation causes us to make bad decisions. Does, oh. we, we don't even have to think about. Okay. I, I have a question about that then yeah. Doug, because, um, and if I'm presuming something mistaken about your own view, we've talked a bit in the past, obviously, but um, uh, on the phone, on the air, actually twice on the air that I know of once when you were a guest for a whole hour, you know, and we, we did the whole thing with your team, with your own um uh, tribe, so to speak. Tribe. But um, one of the things that I've raised and got kind of harassed by another internet atheist regarding has to do with transcendent meaning and purpose. And his response was, we don't need transcendent meaning and purpose as long as we have meaning and purpose that's adequate for our own lives. It's this the classic existential move. Okay, with me so far? Meaning is what we make for ourselves. It's not out there. It's what we decide for ourselves, which, okay, I get that. All right. Is that your, am I, are we, no, this has no, that has nothing to do with what I just said. I'm going to, I'm going to speak to it. I'm going to okay. uh, make an application. Okay. Because you're raising a kind of objection in a sense to what you think is a, a kind of manipulation. And maybe it is, uh, or maybe it's the best that Christian can do at that point. But I, I'm just raising a question regarding that because if it turns out that the reality is where meaning comes in for any individual in a materialistic universe is what they make for themselves. That's the existentialist move in an atheistic universe. Usually then what's wrong with this particular uh, individual who's going through emotional strife to make his meaning by accepting a God or Christ for which he has no reason, but brings him a sense of meaning and value. So what's the problem there on that view on that atheistic approach? which I'm well, not sure if it's yours or not, but you see the point. Well, the point is I, I think Christians would want people to get meaning, hope, and purpose based on something true. I agree. Yeah. So that's why I'm saying that if a person is in a desperate situation, it will be harder for them, I think, and I hope you agree with this, to actually 
look at the evidence objectively and come to that conclusion that I'm basing my hope, meaning, and purpose on something true. Okay, whether they're looking at the evidence objectively or not, the real question is whether what they're believing in is objectively true. I could right. be yeah. ready, having cancer and I go, oh my gosh, you know, and then I go grab the first doctor and I don't know if he's the best one, but he's going to operate on me and deal with it. So I'm moving emotionally, but the fact is I still have cancer and I have to deal with it. And so the Christian is going based on what he actually thinks is true, whether he can defend it or not. And he's he's not like a, somebody who goes into a relationship with a girl who's on the rebound and says, oh, I can get this girl in bed because of her emotions and tricks her that way. The Christian is doing the best they can with the resources they have to communicate the truth in that moment to help that individual. Right. I understand. But like I just read your personal testimony this morning and that pattern seeking that I saw, I actually saw in you. Okay. And like, do you disagree? Like you were probably in your early 20s, maybe not. I was 23 at the time. I'm not exactly sure which part of the pattern you have in mind. I remember reading that you you had a brother who was a Christian, yeah, who I'm assuming you love, and um, and then you had a girlfriend, and your relationship broke. That's right. But now, I make that, clear in my testimony that it was that was not the thing that was the motivating factor to me to come to Christ because that happened a year before, and I always loved my brother even when I thought he was an right. idiot for believing in Jesus, you know. But there was, but it was a time of asking questions and pushing away, and then coming back and having lots of discussions with people. There were no apologetics proper that were part of that part of my life, but in responding and hearing from people and weighing the evidence such as I had, I came to the conclusion. That was actually true. Like, that did you did you ask? Like, you came from a Catholic background. Did you ask I your did. brother why why he believes hell and heaven exist? See, uh, what was the, did I ask my brother what why he believes heaven exists? Well, if Jesus was who he claimed to be, and Jesus believed in heaven, then that's part of a whole. No, world. Did you ask your brother this? Things. I didn't ask him that. I don't. I. I don't know if I asked him questions about reasons for why he believed. Okay. And, uh, and, and, and because, like I said, apologetics proper were not a big part of my view. But the part of the point I'm making in, even if people come to a conviction for completely emotional reasons, if the conviction itself can be independently verified as sound, then it, you can't fault the person for doing that because that would be that would be genetic fallacy stuff. And I don't. But how did you, you figure that. out that it was sound at when you were twenty three? Well, the way the, the the way that I explain it is that it was an ineffable element. It wasn't me kind of adding things up on a list and coming up with a total kind of thing because I had questions that I couldn't answer or that weren't answered for me at that time. But I had had enough that gave me the uh, that I that gave me the sense that what. I was hearing was actually true. And by the way, epistemologically, this is this is the case for all kinds of things that don't even have to do with religion. So what sort of things did you were you hearing that you thought were true? Well, uh, this is where I mean, it was 48 years ago. And so I don't even go into detail on that when I give my testimony now which I did just this last weekend because you don't, because remember? I don't remember. Okay. No, I don't remember all those details, but what I, the two things that I remember, I think pertinent to your question, Doug, is that uh, first of all, there were no apologetics proper that kind of uh, um, were, were in evidence for me. Like, like a lot of my friends who do what I do, they say, Oh yeah. And I looked at this and I looked at that and everything, it all came together. And then, you know, I had to, it really all made sense. I realized 
etc. Uh, that wasn't the way it worked for me. But it was a different set of circumstances that gave me the confidence that what I was asking about and pursuing was actually the case and was actually sound. What were those circumstances? That's what I said. I just told you I don't know what they are. I can't give you I can't give you all of the particulars and all the details. It was the the range of conversation that I had, principally with my brother Mark, but also with a number of other people, one in Fort Lewis, Washington, who was a Christian, and I was in the military at the time and I was asking a lot of questions. But Keep in mind, 48 years ago. So yeah. I wasn't taking notes about all of those things. But I do, I am aware that just like a lot of people who are looking at different decisions, they are coming to a general understanding, a conviction that the things are true. Well, now, I became so, a Christian 43 years ago, and I know exactly what happened. All right. Well, I'm not challenging your own. <laughs> I'm just like, this is a Usually you're asking someone... me. When someone and, becomes and, a Christian, I, I think it's kind of a big deal. Like, and they kind it of, is a big deal. Yeah. I, it's true. But the, but the issue, again, I want to emphasize is that even though there are emotional or even cultural or familial or, or, or economic, all kinds of issues that could drive a person to make a decision about something they think is true, the real question is, is that thing true or not? Yeah. And are there reasons, even if the person doesn't know them or aware of them at the time, well, let me ask to you justify that? Let me ask you this then, like, I know you don't remember, but just a guess, looking back, do you, is your guess that you became a Christian for good reasons? Like given what you know now? Of course. Of course. Uh, yes. Yes. I mean, I obviously wouldn't have become a Christian. I mean, if think about it, I'm 23 years old. I'm in college. I, I'm athletic. I'm, uh, you know, okay with the gals. Uh, I like footloose and fancy free. Why would I want to um, to just uh, add religion to my life when this is going to cramp my style, all right? No, no, but that's not what I'm because, asking. I'm not asking no, about but, desire. No, I, I did it. You're asking about my reasons for it. And did you have yeah. reasons? And I said, yeah, if, I would not. My point is, I would not have just done that if I didn't have what I thought were adequate or sufficient reasons, okay? There was nothing in the natural <laughs> that drove me to that. I wasn't going to get my girl back again if I became a Christian, all right? I wasn't going to make money if I became a Christian. I wasn't going to get laid more often if I became a Christian. You know, those aren't the things that were driving me. There was I other things in my mind. There's there's Christians who, let's say, are 60 years old now, and they're looking back when they became a Christian in their early 20s, and they'll tell me something like, well, I became a Christian because I went to this Christian concert, and I just felt this warm, tingly feeling in my chest. Now... And I've, let's pretend you were that person. And I ask you, do you think that's a good reason to become a Christian? Are you asking me that now? Yeah. It was, is uh, that a good reason to well, become a no, Christian? It, it's not a good reason to get a warm, get lots of things that can produce warm, tingly feelings in your chest. But sometimes people are using those ways of describing it in order to really get at something deeper that's going on. If the Christian worldview is true, if there are good reasons to believe it so, part of that worldview is that there is a work of God in the hearts of people to bring them and draw them to himself. Now, I, I understand that you will see that, well, that's just a totally subjective experience that's disconnected from any rational kind of thing. I, I, it's non-rational. It's not irrational. It is non-rational. It's another way of, of persuading people. The key here, though, is not the means or the modality or any of that by which somebody comes to a conviction. The key is whether the conviction 
turns out to be true. That's the key. We are we are kind of dancing around genetic fallacy stuff at this particular point. And it, I mean, I, maybe I would say I had. But it's not okay to become. But it's. I think you just said it's not okay to become a Christian for bad reasons, even if it is true. No. No, I didn't say it's not okay to become a Christian for bad reasons. I know. We're agreeing. I said, well, you just said the tingling in your chest, and there's lots of things that could explain yeah, that. But we agree that's a bad reason. No, because depending on what the Christian who said that means, there is a sense that is part of the Christian world view that God works in our heart, and people can, in a very decisive way, and people can describe that in different fashions. Maybe the person just said tingling in his chest. But I do think that there is a work that God does. That the Mormons have a tingling of the bosom. Like, is that a good reason for someone to become a Mormon? Well, the Mormons use this in a different fashion. All right. Because what Mormons do is they are given a book of Mormon and then they are asked to get a sensation. They are asked to pray for a sensation to show them that the sensation is evidence from God. This is not what I'm talking about at all. There's no parallel, except for there's a subjective element in each case. These aren't people who are looking for a a burning in the bosom. These are people who are engaging the details of the gospel as they're given to them, and they are becoming convinced that this makes sense and they need that. And some might, no other evidence is involved, and some might call it a tingling in the bosom. But if Christianity actually is true, there is this subjective element of God working even without the rational things that other people may find necessary. I think you you can see that a Mormon sits down and is told to read the Book of Mormon and and pray first, and they get this feeling in their senses, the tingling, and they come to the conclusion it's true. A Christian or someone who's not a Christian opens up the gospels, reads the gospels and get this, gets the sense, this feeling, even tingling that the gospels are true. Yeah. One's a good reason. One's a bad. Well, no, there are two different kinds of experiences at the point I'm making. All right. One is you have to work up the feeling. You're asking God to give you the feeling about this particular book. And the other one is just pursuing you, um, on your journey, pursuing and coming to a conclusion. And I don't know if there's going to be tingling or not. I didn't have tingling. But what we're talking about in either case is something God is doing in the life of the person who's, who is trying to pursue the truth. Now, you're not satisfied with the tingling. Okay, I, I don't care about the tingling. Some people might describe it as tingling or not. But what I am saying is there is an element that is part of the Christian worldview of God making a difference in a person's heart, even apart from all the fancy arguments that Mormons I might would be say able the to same. No, okay. So, so, but, but that, but the real issue isn't how. What was the uh, phenomenology of their conversion? The real issue is were they converted to something that's true, and that's what is important. Do you is think it you, true or not? And sometimes they get. Yeah, that I agree. The question is the question is not ontology though; it's epistemology. How do you figure out it's true? Yeah, so of course. Um, let's, of course, let's, let's shift I wasn't gears making I, any sense about ontology. This is all epistemology for me. All right, not ontology at all. And there are different th- ways that we are appealed to, and one of them is a rational sense, but there are other things as well. Let's switch gears a little bit because I'm I'm getting a census divinitatis right now <laughs> that uh, <laughs> that you're a Calvinist. Is that true? I am reformed in my in in my uh, uh, soteriology. That's right. Okay, so tell me if you think this is correct. 
you're going, if it's true that you're a true Christian, you're going to heaven and you will have eternal life. Mm -hmm. And if, if it's true that I'm not a Christian, I will not go to heaven and not have eternal life. Well, you will face the responsibility for your own sin and be punished for your own crimes against God, such as they are. But my, here's my question. Why am I not a Christian? Well, I think the simple reason why you're not a Christian is because you want to stay where you're at. That is your desire. And, um, and so you are not, you are, you are, you're happy and satisfied to reject God, uh, for whatever reasons that you can offer. And maybe you think the reasons are, are consistent. Can uh, I choose, can I choose to change? Of course I did the same. Okay. So, um, from God's perspective, before I was born, did God elect me to be a Christian or a non-Christian? Well, God, before you were born, God knows what everybody is going to do. And he knows that on their own, naturally, they are going to go their own way. Okay, so I'm just so, doing, no, I'm, I'm I'm just doing what I'm programmed to do, right? No, you're not programmed to do it. That's not the way I would characterize it. You you are doing the things that you want to be to do that are completely characteristic to your nature. And this is something you're conscious of. But do I choose aware. my nature? No, of course. Nobody chooses their nature. Right. So I'm just doing you, you would my have nature. To have a, you would have to have a nature to choose a nature. Okay. Right. <laughs> you, so you you are someone born into the circumstance and you're doing exactly what you desire to do. And so how do I change? How do I change that? Because you're saying I'm just doing what my nature, I'm just doing my nature. How do I change that? Well, the part of the nature that is relevant in this particular point is the part of the nature that rejects God and does the, you can do all kinds of good things from your nature that are, have a, have a, a merit to them and are virtuous and all kinds of things like that. I'm not disregarding that kind of thing, but ultimately when it comes to bending your knee towards God, your attitude is one that you do not want God and you, you, you want yourself. And I, 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 a lot of times I think this attitude is, 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 um, it's called a, um, a dispositional belief. It's down deep here. It's, you're not all aware of, but it's the same way I was when I was, uh, saying everything was morally relative. There were no absolutes and morality. This justified my own behavior. Okay, I could do whatever but, I wanted, but, but I was also marching on, against the war at Vietnam. So I'm describing an internal attitude of rebellion. That's the way I'd characterize it now. That even was true of me. But if I your was, nature is rebellion, how did you change? Because I asked God for help, and God came in and helped me. So you can have a nature of rebellion and still ask God for help? Sure. Isn't that a good it happens thing? happens all the time. Isn't that the opposite of rebellion? Isn't that accepting? Say that again. Isn't that the opposite of rebe- rebellion? Saint reaching out to God and asking for help? Yeah, that is. That's when you lay down your arms and you turn to God. And there are okay, a lot of circumstances. So if your nature is rebellion, how can you ask God for help as a rebellious person? Because God is going to help you. There we before. go. So this is what I, I was kind of, that was a leading question, I admit. No, but. I know I know where you're going with this, but I yeah. wanted to lay a proper framework for it um, because there there's a lot of detail that's going on in this, okay? So if God and doesn't help me, I cannot change, correct? If God doesn't transform you to want to be like him, you won't change. You will okay. do what you want to do. Okay. And that so is the state perfect. of rebellion to him. So the, if I die a non-Christian, it's because of what God didn't do. Well, see, this is one way that people put it, but it's also what you did do in continuing to rebel against him. And so you are going to be held responsible for your actions. Because, I understand that. 
All right. So it's, but, but my question is, if I don't receive eternal life, it's because of what God didn't do. Because God did not decide to bring forgiveness to you in your situation, but to okay. let you go and continue in your rebellion. But the move here is to make it look like it's God's fault. The fact is, everybody is lost and God is saving some. All right. right Why he does some, I don't know. I, that I don't know. I can't answer that for you, Doug, because I'm not God. All right. And I think it's a fair question. Hold on just a minute. I forgot to turn my phone off here. But this is like, let, let's be real here for a second. I'm if, being very real, and I, I know, understand I know, but, why this bothers you. Okay. Well, no, well, my question, let me ask this. Does this bother you? It does trouble me at different times. Okay. okay. I appreciate but, but that. There's, but there's lots of things about the true world that trouble me. And there would be a lot more things that would trouble me if I, if I were an atheist because a lot fewer things would make sense for me, all right? And so what we do is we adopt worldviews that we think are the most persuasive, and every one of those worldviews is messy, because you know epistemology is not uh, a tidy thing, because there are lots of things that are going on with us regarding the issue of knowing, okay? I do have a question about this. Is this meant to be one hour with me and Doug, or are we taking other questions from other people? Oh, uh, we curious. are. No, no, we will be taking more questions, but are, are you done with Doug? You don't want to engage with more? No, well, I'm not. So far, it's been half the show, actually more than half the show. So if this is what you want, you're the boss. I just no, 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 this, this is my last question as far as like this topic. I, I, okay. I still have a couple follow-up questions just to hammer at home. No, you can because, go ahead. I have no qualms, Dr. Coco. Sorry, I, I, I want everybody to get their fair share. Because it's like, I appreci- I really do appreciate, Greg, that you admit that this is troubling to you, but I... I the whole thing to say that God is not culpable, I mean, because God could have chosen not to create me. He if could have done that, too. But I, yeah. I don't understand why he is culpable. Look at it. I have two girls, right? If I create two children, that doesn't, even though I know of a certainty that they're going to do things that are wrong, how does that make me culpable for their actions? Just well, because me, I know it's going to happen. Okay, let me ask you this. If you're no, girls... Wait, wait, I need an answer. I asked a question first. And now, view. How does it make... I know it's going to happen. I create the circumstances. How. So how does that make me culpable because I'm the parent? I'll tell you, if you know the future with 100% certainty and you know your girls are going to uh, live forever in eternal conscious torment, you are a bad person and culpable for bringing them into the world. Well, it presumes that they are being tormented for, for not a good reason. If they are being punished for things that they did wrong, then that's no, a no, different no, matter. No, no, that's no, a matter no. of justice. We're talking before they're even born. I know. You but, know that they're going to suffer for eternal conscious torment, and you still choose to bring them into the world. Yes, but you, you also, are a bad person if you do that. Okay, but you also know that what they are going to do is going to justify the punishment. Okay, now on a on a on an atheistic worldview, I'm confused about this, and the reason is is when we had this conversation on my own show before, Doug. Uh, and now we're I, going to get into morality, but no, I really want to no, stick okay, to this I, question. No, no, this is this question is morality. What you just said is God is evil if that's the way it is. No, I didn't say so evil. This is okay. Well, you use some kind of moral term, essentially the same. That's a bad God or something to that. He is morally culpable. Okay, that's all morality. Okay, he's culpable for it. Great, That's all great, morality. great. Do you agree that if you knew before your girls were born that they would suffer, 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 that you could have chosen not to have them? 
you could have chosen not to have your children born, right? Mm-hmm. Just not have coitus with That's your wife. True. That's right. Okay. And if you know the future with 100% certainty and you're never wrong and you know they're going to suffer greatly and you choose to bring them into the world, what would you say about yourself? Well, I would be acting in a way that resulted in something that was harmful or difficult or painful for my children. But the thing is, you have just reduced it down to two simple factors, okay? And my point is there is a lot more, okay? And if I were an atheist, now you might be saying that's not really wrong from a Christian perspective if that's what God has done. It just seems to be wrong within your worldview, The problem here is, and this is what we mentioned, we talked about before, you are importing a moral standard here to make a judgment against God that in atheism you have no basis for. What you said last time we talked was that, and I asked you this question, so what you're saying is that what God is doing is inconsistent with the way you were Does God want people to suffer for eternity? No, wait, I'm just going back to your basis for morality right now. Okay, if people deserve to suffer, then then they should suffer and be punished. All right. But I'm asking about the basis for your morality. I've already said that I have difficulty with some of these things emotionally. Okay, so Mm -hmm. I acknowledge that. All right. However, what you're doing is you're inveighing against Christianity one aspect of it by importing a moral standard that in your moral standard. Pardon me. I'm using your moral standard. No, if you're using my moral standard, then God ch- makes choices that are appropriate for the circumstances. Does God want God's, anyone to perish? Well, um, well, it kind of depends. You're quoting for Second uh, Timothy chapter three, okay? Yep. Um, uh, well, there's some dispute about exactly in the context what that's making reference. Do you to, personally or, believe okay. in your interpretation that God uh, wants I think? To well, perish? I think that there's. Uh, Kind of, you're just jumping away from another point with another question here. I was, talk- but I'll get to this question. No, in no, just we're a still in the standards have- of morality. Because no, I'm I using know. Your- okay, but okay. Yeah. Then let me finish the point about the standards of morality. What you said earlier is that morality is explained by Darwinian evolution. Okay, and so my- <laughs> this is what we talked about last. Oh, time. Oh, you mean we're last time? I don't yes, even think last right. time I brought up Darwin. Huh? Not even okay, last this time. This is I didn't because I'd asked you for. I'd asked you. I know exactly the question because I've th- and the answer because I thought about it many times since then, and uh, and the, and if you want to dis- dispute that or disagree with it now, you're fine. Fine, but uh, I asked the great what, about the nature of morality, and you said this is something that Darwinism explains, and I said so. Then what you're saying is God is acting in a way that's inconsistent with your morality. I mean, with your evolution. Pardon me. And you said yes. Okay, get it. Now I got it. All right. But the same thing is happening now. You. On the one hand, you're either using your standard, which is a subjective standard based on evolution to judge God, or you're using the Christian standard. And if you're using the Christian standard, which you just pointed out, then Christians don't draw the conclusion that God is bad because he doesn't elect everybody, or at least a lot of them don't. They draw the conclusion that God has a sufficient moral reason for doing what he does, even if we don't always understand it. So on my well, own depends, view, there's not a depends on which type of Christian, though. Yeah, like a, there are different there's, there's non-Calvinist Christians I'm, who are listening sure to, that, to this. I'm sure that Joshua would would uh, would disagree at some points, but whether yeah. you're a Calvinist, that would be Reformed. I'm not strictly speaking a Calvinist, but whether you're Reformed or Arminian, in both cases, the omniscience of God is still in place, and that God is creating 
people that he knows are going to can persist in rebellion against him and are going to be in hell, as you pointed out. That's true for Joshua as the Roman Catholic. That's true for me as a Reformed guy. And it's, it's pretty much true for everybody who believes in the omniscience of God. So this isn't a, a problem just for people like me who are Reformed in our soteriology. So, Doug, uh, do you have any more, or should we take other calls? Well, I don't think we're going to agree with this. I I do think that uh, Greg would, maybe not himself, but would admit that he's at least in some way culpable for bringing his children into the world, knowing that they are going to suffer greatly. Uh, uh, And he might just say, well, that's just a risk I'm willing to take. But when we're talking about, I don't, I actually don't think he's culpable, Doug. I don't, but are you culpable if given my hypothetical? Well, yeah, this is the problem with hypotheticals because there's only a, you, when you give a hypothetical, you get to define the particulars. All right. But the particulars you define are not the full particulars. The hypothetical doesn't apply to God's situation. So the parallel isn't complete. Well, there let's worry about God later. For you, would you be culpable if you knew, let's say even not 100%, but 99% that you, your daughter would go through their her whole life in pain and suffering and then die at, let's say, at uh, age 10? Well, and you no. chose to bring her in and into no, the world. And, and the, no, but I'm going to give you a response from the perspective of a Christian worldview, okay? Um, and, and see, the... the, the like the parallel doesn't work because I'm not omniscient. All right. If I were God and were omniscient, then I would know a whole bunch of other things that are factors into this question that I don't know now. And that's why I think that the attempt to create a parallel here isn't, isn't well, you're saying culpable but, means bad in a bad way. Well, I'm saying just means responsible. That worthy. No, it means worthy of blame is what culpable means. Not merely responsible. If I take this pencil and I drop it like that, I'm okay, responsible okay, for enough. dropping it, but I'm not fair worthy enough. of blame. He's, let's use the word responsible. Is God responsible for the pain and suffering that people experience in hell? Um, there might be a way in which you could use that word to describe it. Okay, but what I what I want to be careful of is not um, making statements that I don't think are actually applicable to God in the way at least I mean that. God makes his own choices. He is responsible for his choices. The consequences are a result of his choices. But just because he's making choices that we don't like does not mean that those choices are not morally defensible from God's perspective. That's the issue. Yeah, but you're still left with God's responsible for every person in hell. Well, in a very qualified sense. And that's the concern that I have right here in our conversation. And that's why I'm reluctant to just simply toss it out. And then someone could say, Greg Kokel says God's responsible. God knows everything, okay? And he He does things according to the broad purposes that he has, all right? Uh, he is not trying to send people to hell. He is not trying to create people so he can fry them. I don't think that's the purpose and the enterprise. But what I am saying is when you make a parallel with humans and God, you're already... Uh, in a problematic circumstance because there are so many other factors yeah. that pertain See, to I disagree God. with, like, I feel like you're contradicting yourself because when you say God's not sending people to hell, well, the way people get to heaven is through what God does. Right. You said that earlier. Okay, yes. Uh, here's the way I would explain that, and I, I suspect it won't make a lot of difference, all right? Uh, some guy's driving his car like a crazy guy and then gets in a wreck. That guy's responsible for his wreck. Another guy, and a, a cop sees him, goes by, and doesn't stop him. 
Okay. Uh, maybe that's not the best parallel, but what I'm trying to think of is somebody who is just doing what they want to do and experience the consequence. It And another person is doing what they want to do and somebody stops them to prevent them from the consequence. Okay. That's a, that's, that's a favor that's done to that second person. The first person got what was coming to him, the consequence of his own actions. And this is why I don't think that there's a moral parity between uh, this kind of circumstance and God. God rescues people that otherwise he knows would be going to a point of punishment. What percentage of the world? I have no idea. I can't possibly. Do you think it's more than 50% or less? I have no way to assess that. And part of it is when you say percentage of the world, are you talking about the body politic right now? How many people from the beginning to now or the end of world history? And you look at the whole amount. Like why does the path to destruction narrows the gate? Doesn't that verse kind of imply that only few are saved? It suggests it, but I don't know if that's the way it, it, it it's all, it's automatically going to work out. And uh, the certainly the narrow path, and many people at that time were taking the broad path of destruction, and Jesus was was uh, warning them against that. But I don't know in the final analysis when all the calculus works out what the numbers are going to look like. I'm not even going to venture that. But well, what I, I do have confidence is is that God is good. All right. That doesn't mean anything. That just means God well, is doesn't God. mean. No, that's not true. Okay. What, is because it, what, what does good mean? This is a whole, this is a, a, I think, okay, if you want to press me on this one, I think goodness is a, is a primitive and we know it when we see it and we have a sense of it. And this is why all of us can perceive goodness and be aware of it. All right. I, I, I'm not, uh, the, I don't have the view that, that a thing is good simply because Dodd Clark declares it and he can declare all kinds of bizarre things as good as a function of his power. Okay. That's not my view about God. Uh, maybe there's some people that way, but very few that I know. Well, how do you define good? Sorry, Josh, I know you want me to I leave, didn't but... define good. I said I, I, rec- I, 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 I think we can recognize good. We recognize good when we see it. When, when, when you watch somebody do something virtuous, you see that and you say that's good. You don't say that fulfills a definition I have. Because if the definition you have is helping other people and they're doing virtuous things by helping other people, the same question could be asked of helping other people. What makes that good? All right. And so I think what I, I think goodness is ultimately a primitive. That means there's, it's on a foundation and we behold it and see it. And we okay, have so if you and I see, if you and I see the same action of between two humans and one action is a sword going into the heart of an infant and we both, you and I see this, and we go, that's, we both agree, uh, no, that's not good. But then we find out later, this is God commanding it in the time of the Canaanites. Mm-hmm. Then it becomes good, right? Well, it, that's because the circumstances completely changed. Yeah, but the God action creates, itself is, just, no, is in no, one no, case, is I bad. All in more, case is good. But, but look, you know this, Doug, that in objectivism, all moral actions, the morality of any action is, is, is determined by the circumstances in which it's done. You want to put a, a sharp thing into the heart of somebody else? Well, if right. it's a scalpel and a doctor, that's one thing. All right. If it's, you know, homicidal maniac, that's something else. If God wants to take the life, forget about the Canaanites. He killed everybody in the flood. All right. right but so With how do you recognize good? How do you recognize good then? Because you got to know the mind of God, whether he sanctioned it or not. No. Well, sometimes I, how do you recognize if you, if we cannot recognize good, then there is no such thing 
because it cannot be defined. Name any heinous thing, name any heinous thing. And I could say, but God wanted this to happen. He sanctioned it. He commanded it. So therefore, any heinous thing you say is now becomes good. No, what we are talking about, what we are talking about is what is the definition of good. And what I'm saying is, I'm saying is that goodness is a primitive that we behold. Okay, now we have a sense of, of what goodness actually turns out to be. Now, there's the grounding problem of what could possibly make that actually good. That's another conversation. We've had this in the past. Okay, without God, I don't think you're going to make anything good and anything bad. All right. But when you have people in positions of authority, the rules of goodness apply differently to them than it does to others. All right. If God makes everything, he is capable legitimately of destroying everything. That's within his proper purview. By the way, it's interesting when people argue against capital punishment. Here's what they often say. It's not right for people to play God. Now, I don't think that argument goes through against capital punishment, but it's interesting what it reveals. It reveals that there are some prerogatives that God seems to have that human beings don't have and human beings shouldn't be killing people, which means God does have a prerogative to take life if he chooses. And uh, and I think that's a standard intuition we have, which is why we say those kinds of things. But I think part of that helps define the circumstances we're talking about. Okay, well, thanks for your time. I know Josh wants other questions to come in. Doug, I didn't expect you to be on the show, but it's a kind of a treat to see oh, you. Oh, Josh again. didn't tell you? No, Josh, you didn't. here, but naughty, naughty. Sneaky okay. guy. I'm sorry, I apologize. Yeah, okay, yeah. It's a better, easier to get uh, forgiveness than permission, right? <laughs> I know how that works. Hey, Doug, okay. all, all the best to you. Good to all see you again. All the best to you. Yeah, take care. All right, well, bye. All right, uh, we have another one from Converse Contender who wants to call in, but let me just ask you a quick question that we had here. What's your stance on evolution? I, I, I reject the neo-Darwinian synthesis. I think some evolution happens. I mean, a lot depends on how you define it, all right? And if you are defining evolutions change over time or you're looking at, uh, you know, the ability of some creatures to uh, resist penicillin and you finch beaks and peppered moths and all of those things. Those particular things need to be qualified carefully because a lot of times you don't have actual evolution. You just have change in population densities, like with the Bistian betulera, the peppered moth and, and, and Darwin's famous uh, finches. But, but there are times when, you know, take all your penicillin because you might breed. Uh, there's some that will survive and then breed more that, that don't uh, get killed and you got a problem. So on that level, I think there is evolution that takes place. I do not think that is adequate that mechanism itself and frankly there's a whole bunch of people in the field right now that that are moving in a new direction not christians not id guys but on the in the in the altenburg 16 back in uh in uh 20 what 2012 or whatever then you've got uh the royal society meeting in london in 2015 i mean they're saying look at this thing is not working the way we thought it worked so on the merits i reject the neo-darwinian synthesis so, quick word: Do you reject uh, common descent? Well, that's all part of the neo-Darwinian synthesis. If you don't have the synthesis, you don't have common descent. And and in some senses, obviously, there's common descent. If even even from my perspective, if you've got a uh, an original couple of human beings, you're going to have descent from there where there's lots of variations. But they're you know from the Aborigines to the Swedes, you know, they look different, but they're still human beings. They're the same kind of being, even though you have lots of variations that could relate, by the way, to survivability in an environment. Okay. Uh, so, um, okay. So I guess, 
Let me ask just one more. Oh, thank you so much, Gnostic Informant, for that question. What is your stance on Epicurean natural atomism versus Platonic metaphysics forms? Do you think one is true and the other false? All right. I may be out of my depth on it here. Leave the question up there, so let me look at it. Um, I I, I actually... uh, Just a second, Dr. Kugel. So somebody in the chat is trying to dox someone. So guys, you're going to get blocked if you do that. I'm just going to warn you all okay uh, so i i don't sometimes i know what platonic metaphysics is this is the forms all right and so this is the shadowy world that's the real world we're looking at the shadows and the shave and the light is from behind us and the, all of that um and um I, I i i don't know what to think about the forms uh, they're abstract entities and i have friends that don't believe such things even exist but they're useful fictions they, they they don't have a realist understanding of the abstract objects all right at the same time what i have seen is people try who are atheists try to ground morality in uh in platonic forms and uh, if that's what's being asked whether i believe in it or not i certainly don't believe that the platonic forms of virtues can ground our moral obligations because abstract objects are inert. They don't do anything. They don't command us, you know? So because there's an abstract form of kindness doesn't mean that I ought to be kind. There's no, there's no obligation and no command that seems to be involved in a platonic, uh, in, in a platonic right. sense. And so that's why I don't accept that as a grounding for morality for atheists. Okay. So Converse, do you want to go ahead? What was your question? Hey, yeah. This will have to be the last one for me because I'm looking at an hour right now and I got other things to go to. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, sure. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, so uh, uh, it's nice to, nice to talk to you. Um, I wanted to first make a, ask a really quick question and then I had a, a little bit longer question. So the first one is like what you were just talking about with Doug, uh, wouldn't it, like, shouldn't what we do there is. When he says, you know, what if God, God made this world, he knew that there was going to be evil and so forth. Um, couldn't you just make an emotional argument right back to like, okay, there's a girl that's all knowing and she knows that if she wears this outfit out that she will be raped, for example, and then go. But she knew that if she took that she sacrificed herself that one time, she would save a million other girls or however many other from being, you know, having the same thing done because that guy would feel so bad that he would jump off a cliff or something, right? You could just use an emotional argument right back the other yeah, way. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I didn't catch all of what you said there. I just having a hard time hearing you. You see me tilting my right ear, and that's my better ear. But obviously, that isn't going to do any difference when I got a headset on. But um, the, um, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't. I think. Yeah, I think. Excuse me. I, I don't think the reasoning is sound in general because there are other factors that need to be taken into consideration that aren't in that conversation or that way of arguing, and so. You know, I'm not going to take that route. All right. I did that once and I got chastised by uh, by uh, an atheist. Um, what's his name? Uh, a fairly well-known atheist who's written a lot of books. And what what I did for people who say um, I did was a little tweet. And I said, uh, <clears throat> I said, well, the atheist says if you were if to the Christian, if you were born in Saudi Arabia, you wouldn't be a Christian. And this really shakes up a lot of Christians because that 
gee, from a human perspective, that seems right. But my response, and I did this in the tweet, is, but the atheist, if he was born in Saudi Arabia, he wouldn't be the atheist. And the guy shot back to me like this is a two-coque fallacy. And I said, no, it's not. All I'm saying is, is what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. And if it ain't sauce for the, the gander, then it ain't sauce for the goose. This doesn't work against the atheist, and so it doesn't work against the Christian. It's a genetic fallacy. That was my point. So what I don't want to do is I don't want to adopt a, a false way of assessing something and then shoot it back at that. There, you've got that. Um, unless I'm just trying to make this point that neither are going to work. And uh, so we're going to have to take a different an- avenue to dispute our, our yeah. point. Okay, so I hope that's helpful yeah. there. Okay, well, do you have time for one more question? I see one more uh, view- viewer who has a call. Okay, if I can understand them clearly, I'll, yeah. I'll be glad to Sorry, do that. Converse, I'm unable to let you in. I don't know why you keep disconnecting anytime I click so it's Father Nathan Orman from Digital Gnosis Channel. Oh, uh, Father? Ser- yeah. Seriously? You're I'm not, not seriously, no. It's, oh, okay. Uh, so you're kind of young to be a priest there. <laughs> and you're you're um, not wearing priestly garments. And, uh, well, okay. you never know. Okay. Um, Nathan, Nathan is, yeah. I, so I wanted to ask you, um, follow up on a question that Doug was asking you at the start, um, when he was asking you whether or not you thought that you had good reasons at the time that you converted to Christianity. Yes, I did. Um, so you think you did have good reasons at yes, that time? Yes, right. But, so, but to some degree, uh, what, I'm, what I'm talking about is this additional element that Doug was dismissive of. But when you, when, when you assess a, a point of view here, Nathan, this is really important. And I actually wrote about this in a different book that I wrote called The Story of Reality. And that is, you have to assess the legitimacy of the view from within inside the worldview it's coming. All right. And this is why I have problem with Doug making moral judgments when he's an atheist and he's got no grounds for those kind of objective moral judgments that he's making. All right. Um, and in, in, uh, in, in, in this particular case, part of the Christian worldview entails the notion that God is at work within us in an ineffable way, but in a powerful way. He's taking the initiative. I'm not like a Mormon begging God to give me a feeling. And then if I get a feeling, I think it is God. Okay, God's taking the initiative. So to me, there was a matrix of thing going on. Maybe I shouldn't use the word matrix, but there was multiple things that were going on in that situation. A lot had to go with the details and what what seemed to me to the persuasiveness of the particulars that I was hearing. But I think at the same time, there was also a work of God. And I learned this later as I studied scripture. There was something else that God was doing that that made all the difference. Thanks, everybody. We have to end the show now. But once again, everybody, thanks so much for coming and helping us out. God bless everybody. Take care. Take care. Well, that's it for this show. I'm Greg Kokel for Stand a Reason. Give them heaven, friends.